0: This is Mark Tinsley, and you are joining me on The Message, which is a ministry of inquiry for today. Today's message is going to come from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. That's John 12, 20 through 33. Let's hear what God's Word has to say, starting in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit.' Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Well, a beautiful passage of scripture. In today's sermon, I've entitled Jesus Christ, Reluctant Superstar. You may remember Jesus Christ, Superstar from some years ago, but I've entitled this one, Jesus Christ, Reluctant Superstar. Now I want to tell you a quick story about a little boy named young Ernie. Well, young Ernie and his family were invited to have Easter Sunday lunch at his grandmother's house Uh, somewhere in America. You can decide what town it was. Everyone was seated around the table as the food was being served, and when Ernie received his plate, he started to eat right away. Well, Ernie, wait until we say grace, his father said. Well, I don't have to, little five-year-old Ernie replied. Of course you do, Ernie, his mother insisted rather forcefully we always say a prayer before we eat at our house. And Ernie replied, well, that's our house, but this is grandma's house, and we don't have to pray for ourselves at grandma's house because she knows how to cook. So, oh my, right? Oh, little Ernie. Um, I think I said something like that when I was a little boy to my mom, honestly, about my grandmother, Uh, and I'm sure many of you probably have similar stories from your own childhood, uh, childhoods, and As they say here in the South, God bless our little hearts. But you know, when I listen to that story, as humorous as it is, I'm reminded that little Ernie spoke his mind, didn't he? He was straightforward. That is, he answered his parents directly and without any guile. At the same time, you might say that little Ernie, though, was a bit naive, wasn't he? Because he didn't have a lot of empathy for his mom and dad, as he said that his grandmother uh, cooked well. And he, maybe he didn't even have a lot. Of, maybe you could say he didn't have respect for his mom and dad, though. He was only five years old. It probably wasn't a matter of disobedience or disrespect. But he certainly didn't have empathy, and he was certainly naive. But in our passage today, I want to submit that Jesus was in no way naive. He was at no little Ernie. But nor was Jesus completely straightforward with his listeners. Again, he was no little Ernie. Now, on this latter point, you're probably thinking, well, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, how can you say that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was not straightforward? Well, I just want you to hang in there with me, and I think over the next few minutes you'll see what I mean. But let's talk about that first point first, uh, first of all. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was not naive. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him on the cross. He knew why the Father had sent him, and he knew the effect his sacrifice would have on the eternal well-being of mankind. In fact, we see that when Jesus is approached with a request from some unnamed Greeks in this passage, he proceeds to lay out for his disciples and for us what is about to transpire in his life. In verses 23 through 33, we read this. i want to read them again. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him, but Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it is time for the judgment on this world now the prince of this world will be driven out and i when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die you see folks in this passage jesus predicts his death but he also predicts the eternal redemption that will be available as a result of his death and resurrection He also alludes to how sin will be dealt with and indeed driven out, the passage says. That sin will be driven out of the world by his shed blood and resurrected life. No, Jesus wasn't naive, folks. Jesus had a full picture of the future. Little Ernie in our story was unaware of how his words might affect those to whom he spoke them, but Jesus was fully aware of the impact of his message. The disciples and listeners were confused, no doubt, because verse 34, a little after our passage today, says that they responded, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They were dumbfounded as to why the Messiah had to die. But Jesus was not dumbfounded. He was not confused. He knew exactly what was going on and why his shed blood was necessary. He had seen the light, as it were. Indeed, he was the light. That's why it says in verse 36 of chapter 12, Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. So again, Jesus was not naive. But I doubt there's much dispute on this point. None of my listeners here would probably uh, dispute me on the fact that Jesus was not naive, that Jesus knew what was going on. However, you might dispute me on the second point I made a little earlier. Earlier, I also said that Jesus was not altogether straightforward either. Little Ernie was told that he had to pray before eating his dinner, and he responded with his humorous, though very direct and pointed, retort. However, when Jesus is approached by these Greeks in our passage, he doesn't respond in kind with little Ernie. But before I explain that, again, I'm kind of holding you in anticipation a little bit of what I mean by Jesus wasn't straightforward. But before I can really get into that, I need to paint the picture of what's going on here in John chapter 12. Let's begin with the scene. Now, if you read John chapter 12, you quickly determine that the resurrection of Lazarus is a topic in chapter 12. It's a point of discussion that comes up a couple of different times. And we all know the story of Lazarus, but you might not recall that the story of Lazarus is just one chapter previous to chapter 12 in John. It's John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, we're introduced to Lazarus and his resurrection. You'll remember that Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and he gets sick in Bethany, which is in Judea. And the sisters, Mary and Martha, they send for Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was, but John chapter 10, uh, verse 39 tells us that he was somewhere beyond the Jordan. So the sisters in Bethany send for Jesus, who's somewhere beyond the Jordan, probably about a day's walk away. And they send for Jesus because Jesus is their friend, and they know that Jesus can help them. They've, they know the miracles of Jesus, and they know Jesus can help. But if you remember the narrative, the messenger gets to Jesus, and Jesus delays a couple of days. He says, we're not going to go now, let's wait a couple of days. And during that time of waiting, Lazarus dies. And then when Jesus finally decides to go to Bethany, his disciples try to talk him out of it because the Jews in Judea want to kill him. But Jesus, being the courageous sort he is, goes Anyway. And when they arrive in Bethany, when Jesus' disciples arrive in Bethany, probably about a day later, and we we believe this because it probably took a day for the messengers to get there. He waited two days and then left and walked there, which probably took him another day. Uh, And then Scripture tells us uh, when he got there uh, that Lazarus had been in the grave how many days? Four days. And Lazarus had already been buried. So Jesus gets the message, he waits two days, Lazarus dies, he gets there, Lazarus is in the grave. The assumption then is that it's over. Lazarus is gone. Feeling this way themselves, Mary and Martha, they're a bit perturbed at Jesus' delay, and if you read the scripture, they chastise him a little bit. But of course, gloriously, we know what happens at that point, don't we? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And this is where Jesus' famous words are recorded in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And don't kid yourselves, folks. This is obviously a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. It's a foreshadowing. And, and, And don't think for a second that Jesus didn't know what he was doing by delaying for a couple of days. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die, not because he had anything against Lazarus, but he knew that if Lazarus died and he went there to Bethany and resurrected Lazarus, He would prove to his disciples and prove to the onlookers and prove to the people and prove to us that he had power over death. And that was going to be an important point for him because when he comes in chapter 12 to tell his disciples that he's going to die and come and raise from the dead, he needed to have proven to them that he had power over death. So this Lazarus narrative in John chapter 11 was no accident. And so with this miracle in full view, when we get to John chapter 12, there's a buzz in the region about Jesus, about what miraculous things he's done. In fact, in John chapter 12, verse 17, it says that people were actually and actively going around telling about how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So it's no surprise that these curious Greeks appear in the beginning of our passage today, John chapter 12, verse 20, and they say to Philip, sir, we want to meet Jesus, We want to meet him. You see, Jesus was a superstar at that point. I mean, he was veritably a first century rock star. It would be like if Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney or U2 or some other modern day rock star came to your town. No doubt people would try to get an audience with these people. They would try to obtain an autograph or a handshake or maybe just a simple hello. And it's the same way with this. these Greeks. They're fans of this, this Jesus who's performing miracles, and they want to meet this person who's intrigued them. Scripture says that Philip told Andrew, and together they took this request to Jesus. Now at this point, as I'm reading Scripture, I have an expectation of Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Uh, at this point, I expect Jesus to acknowledge the request. These Greeks saw him as a superstar, and they wanted to meet him. Therefore, I expect him to address this in one way or another. Like little Ernie, I expect Jesus to attack the matter head on and give us his honest gut reaction to what these Greeks want. But he doesn't, does he? In fact, Jesus never directly addresses the request. You might say that he ignores it. Instead of saying something like, no, nah, I-, I don't want to meet with them, or "Or I don't have time for them right now, or I have more important matters to attend to, Jesus simply changes the subject. And he launches off into the diatribe in verses 23 through 33 that I just read a few minutes ago. And in this diatribe, this long speech, like I said before, he predicts his death and resurrection. And though that's a great thing, it's something not directly related to the request from the Greeks to meet Jesus. So Jesus isn't straightforward, is he? He doesn't attack the the, the issue at hand. He he goes around it, he circumnavigates it. He 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 comes at it from a different angle. But he also does something else and verses 23 through 33 that I haven't talked about yet. He takes the opportunity to talk about service and servanthood to his disciples. In verse 26, he says, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. You see, these Greeks were looking for a rock star, a veritable first century superstar. They were looking for entertainment they were looking for someone who could wow them. They were looking for someone who could impress them. They they liked the glitz, they liked the glamour, they liked the grandiosity. They were looking for big. But Jesus ignores this request and he turns his disciples' attention to something else. You see, I can only imagine that Philip and Andrew were excited to bring this request to Jesus. I mean, their leader had become a person who wanted to who others wanted it to spend time with. They had been marginalized. Jesus had been marginalized through much of his ministry. People disliked him. People were undermining him and now he's got a fan club. He's got people who want to meet him. This must have been exciting for his followers. He was famous. But Jesus doesn't take on the persona at this point of a superstar, of a rock star. Rather, he takes on the persona of a reluctant superstar. And he in effect says, forget about that request. A request that's motivated by pride and secular wisdom and selfishness. And let's talk about what's most important. And what's most important is your service to me and my service to the Father. In a split second, Jesus turns the mood from pride to humility, from selfishness to selflessness, and from me to he. He turns it from me to he. Sure, Jesus could have met with those Greeks. He could have basked in his superstardom. He could have told the story of Lazarus over and over again and built himself into a worldly hero. But he didn't. He turned the table to the matter of selfless, humble servanthood, and he gave his audience the best object lesson of this that he could have given them, and that was, He told them what he had come to do in service to the Father and to mankind. And then later we know, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he showed them that what he had talked about there was true. Is Jesus a superstar? You bet he is. He's the Savior of the world. But I want you to notice that he's a reluctant superstar reluctant in the sense that he doesn't want lavish praise or renown or worldly affection these things are fleeting this things go we've all seen the the starlets and and, and actors and, and musicians they're they're big one day they're on top of the world they're making lots of money they're getting a lot of attention and then the next day they're nobodies nobody knows who they are They they maybe they've lost their fortunes or they're just marginalized in hollywood or nashville or wherever Because worldly stardom is fleeting, it's because it's ultimately not what's important for us in our lives of faith. You see, what's most important to Jesus for himself and for us is that we serve God, that we love God, and that we obey God. It's not about our stardom. It's about God's glory. It's not about our kingdom, but his kingdom. It's not about me, but he. Unfortunately, many of us in our lives, we try to achieve stardom, don't we? We want praise. We want affection. We want renown. But Christ would have us put these desires to the side and take on his persona of the reluctant superstar. Yes, we want to achieve great things for God. There's no doubt about that. that's what we want to do. But we need to do it and we should want to do it from a posture of humility and grace and love. How are you doing in this regard today? Well, of course, only you can answer this. But I want to encourage you to become a reluctant superstar. Of course, doing this is not easy. But it requires, first of all, it starts with perspective. We've got to know, perspective is knowing who we are. In Christ, having the right perspective, knowing who we are in Christ, what he did for us, and who we are in relation to him. It also starts with humility, knowing what we are not without Christ. So it's about perspective, knowing who we are in Christ, and about humility, knowing who we are not without Christ. So I want you to do something today, in this week. Write this down. Write down these words, not me, but he this is the mantra of a reluctant superstar not me but he it's not about us it's not about our stardom it's not about our uh, uh renown or our um uh, how much we're how famous we are how much affection we get that's not what it's about it's about god and the mission that he's given us as believers to make disciples in this world and to spread the gospel and the good news to others not me but he write it down i want you to reflect on that this week and i want you to make god first not yourself be the reluctant superstar you know jesus wasn't straightforward with those greeks but he wasn't straightforward with them because he wanted to turn the disciples attention to the thing that was more important the idea of selfless service the idea of serving god and serving others as a reluctant superstar. Let's do that this week. Let's become everything that God would have us to be. God bless you and have a great week.